This is Two Guys in a River. I'm Steve Mathewson. And I'm Dave Getz. We're two lifelong friends who love fly fishing for trout. Our podcast is all about helping you catch more fish and deepening your love of the time you spend on the river. We are Two Guys in a River. For the love of fly fishing. Today we're in Bozeman, Montana, talking with Dave Cumleen of Trout Unlimited. One of Dave's roles with TU is serving as the Western Coordinator of TU's Veterans Service Partnership. We talked with Dave about that in an earlier podcast, but today we want to talk with Dave about fly fishing and conservation. This relates to his role as the director of TU's Aquatic Invasive Species Program. This is a topic that is important to both of us. We believe strongly in preserving as well as enjoying our natural resources. So we're grateful to talk with Dave about what we can do as fly fishers to protect the rivers, streams, and the fish in them. So Dave, what are the greatest challenges out there today? I mean, I can hardly say aquatic invasive species. What are we, what are we talking about? Well, if you have to say that again, just use AIS. Oh, thank you. Now, everybody now, everybody now you knows me. what that means now. So the, now you tell me. No, the, the biggest challenges, I guess, are that, uh, you know, at least within the fishing community, uh, is recognizing that aquatic invasive species are a threat and that anglers are a potential vector for moving some of these things. Now, we're not responsible for moving every aquatic invasive species in the world, commerce, travel, uh, things like that. There's a lot of different ways in wild animals, vectors, so there's a lot of different ways things get moved around. But I think the threat of aquatic invasive species is is growing. It, part of it is just the pace of life, commerce, and social activity you know we move more places we move more things more places and people don't always think about what they're doing i read an article in a, a study that NOAA did national oceanic atmospheric whatever that is and they said in that study that on the average a new aquatic invasive species shows up one new species every six months in the great lakes oh, which wow. is pretty crazy when you it think is. about it so we're talking about what like mud snails or plants plants pathogens critters okay. um, all kinds of different things you know invasive species uh, there are all kinds of different threats and we just move so many things so, so fast and people move so many mm. places if you just take anglers look at anglers today how much more how much more they travel and move around they move around within states and go to between drainages they go between countries uh, very yeah. quickly and uh, that 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 whole paradigm of behavior is is much different than it was 30, 40 years ago. So that's increased the risk that anglers can move some of these things or that AIS things get moved around. A couple decades ago, whirling disease was a, was a big issue here in Montana. How has that resolved itself over time? Well, whirling disease is sort of what got me into this whole aquatic invasive species thing. I, I was a founding uh, board member for the Whirling Disease Foundation in Bozeman that formed as a result of the discovery of whirling disease in the Madison that caused, a, at the time, a 90% decline in the rainbow population. So that's what kind of got me involved in the whole aquatic invasive species thing. And then we merged with Trout Unlimited and began to work on other AIS threats beside whirling disease. But as far as whirling disease itself... 
it's still an issue for cold water fisheries managers all around the country. If you put in a Google alert for whirling disease, there was a the first discovery of whirling disease in a river in North Carolina that just came through on the internet the other day. First time they'd ever seen it. Weren't sure how it got there. Might have come out of a hatchery, but it still remains a problem and it will cause problems when it gets into new places. What it hasn't been is the absolute disaster that it was forecast to be in the West when it first mm-hmm. showed up here. It still has impacted trout fisheries and streams, some of which have never fully recovered from the from the peak infections like the Madison. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's still there. But we've moved on to other train wrecks. I mean, that's human nature. You know, we're, we're on to the next train wreck now. So it doesn't get as much in t- attention, but it's still a problem. So how does uh, something like a whirling disease uh, get passed on by fly fishers? I realize it's multifactorial and it's not right. just fly fishers, but uh, how might it you know how might it get passed from stream to well, stream one of the one of the ways we know that it got moved around and this was a tragic mistake but fisheries managers and aquaculture people didn't think that it could be introduced into the wild. It was a hatchery problem at first. And so some of the hatcheries got whirling disease, and I don't understand this now, but there were more than just one state did this. There were people that thought, well, we can move these fish out into the wild, and it's not going to transmit into wild fish. This is a hatchery problem. But that was a mistake. So the state of Colorado is the poster child and the whipping boy for what happened, but they stocked infected fish in Colorado for quite a while, and that made their problem far worse. So the movement of fish and fish products, frankly, products made from fish like fish food that would have the parasite still in it, that was one of the primary ways it was moved around. But the parasite itself, the first stage of the of the whirling disease parasite, Myxobolus cerebralis is the Latin name, has a hard spore stage that can get stuck on equipment. It gets trapped in felt. It gets in mud, uh, in water. And uh, there, there is evidence that it's possible that, that anglers moved it around on their equipment. And so that was one of the ways. And then, of course, something you can't control, like fish-eating birds. You take white pelicans that eat an infected fish out of the Madison and then fly over the divide there to the Gallatin or going the other way to the Big Hole or Jefferson. They'll move an infected fish. There's nothing you can do about that. So, That's interesting. Yeah. So for listeners that may be new to fly fishing, they may not understand that uh, that over the past few decades that felt has been the, uh, the, the favorite... <clears throat> soul for wading boots because it's uh you just don't slip as much right when you fish the yellowstone it's like walking on greased cannonballs yeah felt's a lot better than than rubber but uh problem with felt is it, it can uh trap those uh, invasive species and yeah you can transport right. them that way so there's that's that's the movement then away from uh, felt yeah i mean there was a lot of focus on felt soles and um interest on the part of the industry and the anglers of, about trying to do something about it. The very qualities that make felt good for wading material also uh, make it a uh, good for aquatic invasive species because it's fibrous woven stuff so there's 
place yeah. to trap debris and critters and pathogens in there. Mm-hmm. Plus, it stays wet yeah. for a long yeah. time. And to keep an aquatic invasive species alive, you need to keep it wet. And then none of them want to be dried. If you dry yeah. most of these things out, you kill them. Mm-hmm. So there was some interest about about getting rid of felt and some some evidence that showed there was the potential for whirling disease to be moved around and so there was a, uh, the manufacturers like Orvis and Sims and Cabela's and L.L. Bean and Hodgman and others they came up with some alternative soles they were rubber at first and some of those weren't very good but they developed some better rubber soles and then I think Sims was kind of the leader they got rid of felt entirely in their product line mm-hmm. can't remember what year that was since then they brought felt back but they still have a lot of alternative sole boots and then people discovered that rubber by itself wasn't that great so they put studs and cleats on them and now there are a lot of boot choices for people who want to use non-felt boots that are easier to clean and dry and this whole angling uh, equipment care based on inspect clean your gear and dry it out felt is all a part of that but one of the things felt has done and i've been involved in this from the very beginning felt has helped shift the paradigm of thinking by anglers about their potential role in moving these things around does getting rid of felt mean we'll never know that an angler will never move another aquatic invasive species no it does not but the focus on felt got a lot of people thinking about their behavior about cleaning their boats about cleaning off, off debris about moving fish parts between drainages in some cases about moving plants the felt really the felt uh, sole issue got a lot of people thinking about their role and there were some naysayers some people who didn't buy in and some of them were very vociferous and very angry because human nature is you don't want to change but a lot of the people think you know they understood what the risk was this whole thing is about risk management not risk reduction the only way you can or risk elimination so it's about risk reduction and risk management if you want to eliminate the risk then you have to eliminate the activity which is heresy for us. I mean, that's why we don't go fishing anymore. Are you crazy? Right. I mean, so that's not going to happen. So we got a paradigm of uh, behavior. We've got a shift. The Feltzel thing got him thinking about doing that and and addressing the issue in other places. So that, that was the good part of that. And that was one of the things that became apparent to me very early on in this Feltzel thing, that it was doing as much to shift the paradigm of thinking. It was as it was actually doing to reduce the risk of moving stuff and it helped lead to other programs and you know there are felt sole bans in some states some states like montana are not going to ban felt but almost virtually every state that's got a fish and wildlife department has adopted some form of the inspect clean and dry that they put in their literature they're talking to boaters and anglers and water recreationists to inspect your equipment clean it and when all possible dry it before you go between drainages and that to me that's a pretty big thing yeah that's you know 15 years ago you never heard that if you said inspect clean and dry your gear to somebody they'd look at you like what (laughs) what are you talking about so dave just thinking a little bit more broadly what what are some things that fly fishers can do to um, just preserve the the habitat the the trout rivers that we fish the the fish themselves what what are some things that practical things that we can do when we're out on the the river just to uh, just to protect this great uh, resource that we have. Clearly, we've talked about what people can do about angling equipment care for aquatic invasive species. 
And then I would say, you know, in this day and age, practicing good trout conservation and most fish and wildlife departments have regulations that are set up to do that. So being being supportive of those departments that are clearly committed to managing their fisheries for sport fishing. Mm -hmm. I don't think many departments really manage anymore for consumptive fishing for people, at least in rivers and streams. Now, lakes are a different matter, you know, harvesting a bunch of walleyes for a fish fry or even trout out of a lake that's stocked. It's a different animal. But most of these rivers and streams are going to require conservation measures, not always catch and release, but some conservation measure to reduce uh, the take or eliminate certain techniques. Uh, Might be flies and lures, artificial lures only as opposed to bait. Uh, The survival rate would be higher on those techniques than than using bait. So I think being generally supportive of departments that are committed, because again, you talk about changing human nature, people don't like it. When you tell them you can't keep fish anymore, what do you mean? My grandpa Mm -hmm. kept fish. So if we want to continue to support, to have the sport, we need to do that. One of the issues that clearly we're starting to deal with is these droughts and climate change. I mean, I think there's there's some things that we can do to protect habitats, uh, to do habitat restorations that will protect protect riparian zones, to keep mm-hmm. water colder and cleaner. And whether you believe in climate change or not, just those kinds of activities are good for trout. Absolutely. And uh, there are a lot of organizations involved in doing that, including Trout Unlimited. So the other issue is uh, there are a lot of challenges from uh, consumptive challenges to our waters and uh, using water for municipalities, for agriculture, for mining. And I think in order for our stream fisheries to survive, we're going to have to realize that mm-hmm. fundamentally trout need water. So we yeah. need to figure out ways <laughs> yeah. to do all those things because I'm not about to give up drinking water or growing green grass. Right. I, I just, But we have to understand that if you start to dry out these rivers and streams, you have no water, you have no fish. Sure. It's that simple. What's your thoughts about uh, barbless hooks? I know that's kind of controversial, depending on who you talk yeah, about. Yeah, barbless is, that- is controversial. I am not a guy that preaches barbless hook fishing. If it's required by law, then I do it. If right. it's barbless like the park, yes, no bait, no lead, right. no barbs. Yellowstone Park. Uh-huh. Yeah, so that's what the park does, and that's fine. The one thing about barbless hooks, you can get the fish off much faster than you can off of a barbed hook. But there have been some studies done, and I've talked extensively to some biologists that are familiar with some of them. And one of the main factors in trout survival is the speed of the catching and releasing, or the speed of release. The longer you fight them, the more lactic acid they built up, the harder mm-hmm. the harder it is for them to recover. And there's one thing about the barbed hook, you can get that fish landed much more quickly. You can lean on them a little bit. I, I say somewhat in jest, but in some seriousness to people that I'm guiding, and I still guide, they get a fish hooked and they're playing them a long time because they don't want to lose them or they have a light tip. But mm-hmm. I'll go, you know, Dave, they that fish already knows how to swim. Let, let's let's get this fish in and get it landed while it's still got some energy left because that trout that's been overplayed to the point where they're exhausted and you can just slide them across the top of the water. If the water's a little warmer especially, that trout has a pretty high probability oh, yeah. of dying. <laughs> so get them landed fast. You can do it faster on a, on a barb. And as we went through the other day, when I hooked myself, if you, under, if you understand 
how to get the hooks out. Yeah. It's not hard to get a barbed hook out of a fish. You just understand yeah. that you've got to get the angle, and then they come out pretty easy. So yeah. I tell a lot of people, if barbed hooks are not prohibited, go ahead and fish them. Because you can get them in faster, frankly, right. and, and get them the off key. faster. Right. That that's is the key. key. Yep. yep. Well, I'll tell you what. This was a terrific uh, podcast. Very, very helpful. Thank you so much for yeah. your time You're today. You're welcome. We appreciate it, Dave. Yep. Thanks. It was fun. In the meantime, we'd love to hear from you. Go to twoguysinariver.com. That's two with a numeral, twoguysinariver.com, and post about any conservation projects in which you have been involved or perhaps some tips that you might offer uh, some other fly fishers. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook. I'm Steve Mathewson. And I'm Dave Getz. Until next time, we are Two Guys in a River. For the love of fly fishing. Mm-hmm.